The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. I love that video because what you realize is it truly is one integrated story. It's not, not seven dispensations, it's not three ages of man, it's really not even two testaments. What we see as we read the Bible is we see one unfolding story of God. It is God's 
mission and quest and drive and love to step into where humanity is and to rescue humanity from what it has done. That is the essence of God's story. And that is the essence of what we celebrate during the Advent season. See, one of the things I love about this whole thing, what I, what I love about each of the words that, that unfolds in the story of Advent is each one of these words is a word that is intrusive to the human condition. Each one of these words is iconic of what it is we need, but we cannot create in and of ourselves. We cannot create hope by ourselves. We are a hopeless people. We struggle for a sense of deep joy in and of ourselves. We do not create joy very well. And today, this third Sunday of Advent, is the advent of peace. And if there's anything that's true about peace, peace is something that we struggle with. As a people, as a race, I mean, we just struggle with it. We want it, we talk about it all the time, we long for it, we have big groups and committees and institutions that come together to see peace established, but even there it's hard because so often we take this word peace that we so desperately want and we corrupt it and we contort it and we lessen what true peace is all about, what the Bible informs us of in the context of peace. I mean, think about how we use it even as a culture. I mean, it shows how much we, we mess with it. You think about, like, uh, what was the gun that settled the West? Colt 45 Peacemaker. Right? Amen. <laughs> right? So, and so we go, hey, man, that, that's peace right there. It's how we use the word peace. Or we have this amazing device. It's this, uh, I, I don't remember the exact designation. I think it's like the LGB 118 ballistic, 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 I don't even know what it is. It has 10... Ten warheads on it that could wipe out entire cities, and, and we call that the peacekeeper. Or we go, that's our variation of peace. When we think about those who write peace treaties, it's usually a stronger country has defeated a weaker country, and so the solution is well, we're going to write this thing, we're going to call it peace, when really all it is is surrender. See, in that sense, what we have this tendency to do is to take this precious, needed word and, and then reapply it to other things that are less about harmony and more about the potential to harm unless you yield to me so that we have harmony. Right? That's sometimes how our world understands peace. And, and that's kind of at the broader cultural level, whether it be ballistic missiles or guns or treaties. But even for our own lives. We see where we kind of struggle with peace. I mean, think about the things we're entertained by. I mean, we are not going to be happy, right? Unless the Avengers wipe out the entire downtown, downtown skyline of New York. It's like, no, man, that's what was entertaining to us. Not, not peace. Nobody, nobody goes after, like, I, we need the Harmony Channel, you know? We, we need Peace TV, you know what I mean? Nobody's going to watch that. And we're like, no, why would I watch that? Who needs Harmony? Who needs peace? We talk about it, but we struggle to really want it we like it when somebody retaliates we like it when somebody gets even and so when we start to study peace in the bible it's this really weird thing because again we want it but we struggle with it we like it but we don't like it we want it but we want a lot of other things as well and so we twist the whole concept of peace and part of it is because that's what's in our nature our nature because of our rebellion, 
is to claim things but not really chase after things. It's to seek things in theory but not really pursue them in practice. So there's these ideological concepts, but really the day-to-day affairs, we struggle with what peace is really all about. We struggle with what it means to sense it or express it or even to expect it. It's part of the problem. And all of this goes back to the beginning again, right? It goes back to our roots. We've been doing that all the way through Advent. We've been looking at the the way that we go back to Genesis. We see how things started, how things were corrupted, and how we then are coping with all of the stuff that flows out of that. So we go back to Genesis chapter 1, and we see a very familiar passage. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. See, this is like one of those really familiar ones. We're like, oh yeah, I know this one. I can pass the test on Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 28. Here's what's so important about understanding what's going on there. When God creates, God creates in a covenantal way. A covenant at its core is an agreement between two or more parties. And in this sense, this is God's first real covenant. He creates humanity, and not just to be a creature that is unlike him, but a creature that is very much like him, in his image, in his likeness. That is covenant. And for the Hebrew mind, covenant is embedded in this concept known as shalom right you might be familiar with that shalom is just the essence of god's peace and so when we were created we were created in the context of perfect peace eden had peace our relationship with god had peace we had internal peace adam had internal peace eve had internal peace their marriage was total peace their relationship to god was peace their environment was peace and in the context of that peace then god says go create go create in peace imagine what our world could do if it knew nothing but peace and the power to create what we could create so often our world creates out of the context of conflict But to create out of peace, that would be something altogether radical. Well, that was what they were called to do. To create in peace, to exhibit peace, to enjoy peace, to uh, just live in the context of peace. Right? So that's what we were made for, to experience. But then, there was rebellion. And in Genesis 3 to Genesis 7, you see nothing but an assault on peace, right? So the serpent comes in to do what? To divide. Right, So he sees the shalom of God and people. He sees the shalom of people to people. And he says, I've got to divide this. I need to bring conflict and clash and war. And so he brings this division through deception. And everything begins to come apart. Originally, Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. And then they become exposed and guilt-ridden. Right? That's not peace. That's the opposite of peace. And the relationship between humanity and God, that was fractured. It went from peace to conflict. We see that there's going to be conflict from the seed that comes from the woman and the seed of the enemy. The world will know nothing but conflict, no longer peace. We see in the marriage covenant, God says, you know what? The man and the woman are going to jockey for position. They're going to fight one another. She's going to try to control him. He's going to try to rule over her. There's no peace. The first siblings, what happens? No peace. There's envy, strife, and death. The next story after that is just a stranger attacks a guy, and the guy kills the stranger. 
right? So you instantly go from this garden of peace, the shalom of God, the sense of tranquility, to absolute crumble. In marriage, in family, in culture, by the time you get to Genesis 6 and Genesis 7, man, it, the wheels are just off the wagon. The whole culture has come apart. The whole culture is riddled with evil and cruelty and mockery and destruction because the world has lost peace. Lost it. So according to the account, God destroys the world. He destroys the entire planet because there is just decay. The opposite of peace. But in the destruction of the earth, God saves the house of Noah. And there on the budding slopes of Ararat, we see this interesting scene that is reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1. It says, Noah and his family, they left the ark, and Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some, some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. That is always the sign of repentance, which acknowledges that there is division. The need for repentance, the need for atonement, the need for sacrifice is always connected to the reality that there is division between us and God. Noah acknowledges that while God has saved Noah in God's grace, there is still sin and there's still division. So Noah just does what he should do and he builds this altar and gives these offerings. And the Lord receives it in verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again accursed the ground because of man. Even though the intents of man's heart are evil all the time, even from his youth. It says, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And then God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them, see if you remember this, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. So it's like this Eden part two, right? And, and you might look at that and say, man, this is going the right direction. Right? Because sure, we rebelled, we failed, God destroyed, but God saved Noah in his grace. And in that grace, Noah responds in repentance. And in that repentance, it's going to be perfect peace, right? As they go and fulfill the original mandate of Genesis 1, it's all going to be nothing but happiness and joy and fulfillment and hope and this peace that we need. Well, that's not exactly what happens. For no sooner does God said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, that he immediately says in the next verse, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth, on every bird of the heavens, and upon everything that creeps on the ground, and all the fish of the sea into your hands. They are all delivered. What you see there is that even though it's a second start, it's not the same as the first. There isn't going to be peace. There isn't going to be the same tranquility that we were associated with in Eden. It's a restart, but it's a restart with baggage. It's a restart with sin. It's a restart, but our nature that is in rebellion to God remains intact. And so what you see then for the continuation of the story of God is you see God working in the context of sinful man to give them a sense of peace, but that full peace, it isn't there. In fact, just as you traverse the story of Israel, you see nothing but an absence of peace. They want it, they long for it, they give peace offerings and they speak of peace all the time and they long for the peace of God, but in the context of all of that, you see that they are always attacking or being attacked, you see internally there's strife, they have a divided kingdom, they get into these different contests between the kings, they've got families that are divided, tribes that are divided, I mean, there's all this division that happens in the scope of the continuation of the Old Testament because at the core of the problem is the human condition. 
human nature is the problem, right? We're better at being troublemakers than peacemakers. We just are. I mean, peace is hard. I mean, think about it in our own lives, how hard it is to maintain peace. I mean, we'll, we'll vote sometimes thinking about who can create peace, or we'll talk about things that need to happen for peace in the Middle East or other places. But you know what? It's all kind of silly because you know what? We can't even manage peace on our own homes, right? I mean, to really manage lasting peace in your marriage is hard. Uh, to manage lasting peace with your teenage kids, that's hard. To manage peace with your two-year-old, good luck. That's hard, right? I mean, honestly, they're like, I don't negotiate with terrorists, man. I mean, they're like, they're two. They're dangerous, right? So, so we, we can't even do, we can't manage peace on the 405, all right? There's so many, we can't manage peace at work. We can't manage peace with our neighbors. We can't manage peace in our cities as a culture. We certainly can't manage the peace of other nations, I mean, it's so weird, this whole quest for peace, because peace is elusive. Peace will never be found in this world. It just won't be found. It doesn't belong to this world. It cannot be mustered by this world. It just can't. It doesn't offer it. There's no solution to it. It doesn't matter what you want to do, what you want to say. Matter of fact, I was thinking about this week. I had, I had a situation, and, and it reminds me of why, why no matter what we do, it's just it's going to be elusive. Um, so I, I was thinking about this week. Last week I shared where I was kind of having a bad week, right? And, and, and a, part of the bad week was just me looking down the road and not having the peace of God and everything else. But I was, I was thinking about uh, just the future of the church and where are we going to land in a facility and everything else. And man, that just takes money. And man, how are we going to come up with that money? And then I realized, I'm like, I, I got a checkbook, Right? This is no problem. In fact, if you've got a checkbook, I encourage you to get it out right now. We're going to solve our problem. <laughs> so if you have a checkbook, all right, I want you to get that out. I, w- I want you to just write out to Redemption Church. Right? Just put that right there in the pay to the order of. And I want you to put $10 million. We're going to build an amazing building. right? Because I don't know, there's, there's probably, I don't know, 250 of you in here right now. So that's a lot of money. Um, so hopefully you're writing your check right now. I'm writing mine. All right? And uh, just signing it, right? So we're good. And uh, I'm chucking in my $10 million. You each chuck in your $10 million. And this building's going to be finished in no time, all right? So hopefully you got it. You can just drop that in the bucket when it goes by. And, uh, and I just solved my problem. I have peace now, right? Because you all just gave $10 million. I just gave $10 million. We solved the problem, right? What's the problem? problem is none of us have the capacity to do that. And if you do, we'll leave your check in the bucket. Um, <laughs> We'll take your check, right? No, the problem is when you don't actually have the capacity to pay it, it's nice that you want it, it's nice that you talk about it, it's nice that you seek it, but you don't have the capacity to do it. It's the same thing with peace in the world. The world can never find peace. Ever. It cannot emanate from within our world. I have to stress that because the next time you're listening to somebody or watching something and they're talking about peace, just look and go, oh man, they're cute. They're cute because we, we can't do it. Honestly, like I said, if we can't even manage it in our own marriages and homes, how can we think we can manage it as a culture? As Christians, we struggle with a sense of peace. So how, how do we think the world's going to come up with a solution for the Arabs and the Israelites or the Israelis? And, and that, we're just, it's not going to be there, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we, we want it. And what was great is in the Old Testament, <clears throat> Israel knew this. 
I mean, Israel would long for peace, but they also know that peace does not emanate within the human condition. They were aware of the fact that there was a greater need, a need beyond themselves, uh, a need from heaven. In fact, the prophet writes of this. He speaks of a child that was going to be born. He says, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And his government and its peace will never end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. For the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, what I love about this is a couple of things. First of all, what they knew is that, again, peace was not going to be a grassroots campaign of this planet. Peace would only come from outside of our world, outside of our race. A prince of peace, one who would come and deposit the peace that we need in the world. The other thing we see is that God is zealous for this peace. God is not passive to this. God isn't like, eh, if they figure it out, great, whatever. God's like, man, I'm zealous for this peace. He's so zealous, in fact, that God himself will come to establish the peace. God didn't create the problem, but God will take responsibility for the problem and come and bring peace to the world. And in the New Testament, this artificial barrier between old and new, it's not the way the Bible really sees it, it's the way we say it, but this artificial barrier, there's a crossing, and with that you see the arrival of peace. First of all, it's peace to us. It says in Luke chapter 2, it says, That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory shone around them, and they were terrified, but the angel reassured them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a a manger. So suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth. To those whom God is pleased. See, this peace is so different, right? I mean, again, what we're used to is peace through superior firepower, peace through force, peace through intimidation, peace through strength, peace through control. But here it's peace not by subduing others, not by threats of retaliation, but it's a peace where he comes and he wins over. He doesn't merely win. He gives up to gain. He chooses least to be greatest. He inspires more than he simply demands. And he's willing to die to give life. That's a very different version of the peace that God brings to this world. He brings peace to us, and he brings peace for us. Colossians chapter 1. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So here's part of the problem, right? Part of the problem is the lack of peace in our world is predicated on the condition of our soul and our relationship to God. Here's the newsflash. People go, man, God loves me. And I go, yeah, God loves you, but God is also at war with you. 
Because you picked the fight. You said, I don't want peace with you. I'm going to go my own way, do my own thing. I don't need you. I just need me. I need others. I need stuff. I don't need God. So we are unreconciled with God until there's reconciliation. And it is the blood of the cross of Christ that brought that. See, it was a sacrifice that brought peace between us and God. And only when we have peace between us and God are we going to even have the potential to bring peace to the world around us. Until we're reconnected to his peace, we're not going to know real peace. We will fight for peace and we'll hopefully fight stronger for peace. And hopefully somebody isn't stronger than us that topples our peace. But here, it's a lot different. It's God creating peace in us so that we might bring peace to others. Legitimate, lasting, true, fulfilling peace. So Jesus in this baby comes as peace to us. And Jesus on the cross comes as peace for us. And he does that so there can be peace in us. Us. John 14, 27, he says, I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. And the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. Again, when Jesus said that, you think about the context of his culture. His culture had this thing called Pax Romana, which was uh, peace at the end of a Roman sword. Right? So the Roman Empire was as powerful it was as it was because it established the rule of law and that was guarded by the sword of Rome. And so everybody experienced peace in Rome. All, all, those, all those Jews that were, quote, oppressed were oppressed under Roman peace. Right? They saw themselves as oppressed. The Romans saw them as, no, this is the way we keep peace. We keep peace by keeping everybody under control. If everybody's under control, you have peace. And Jesus says, ah, man, that's not my peace. I'm going to give you a peace that is so different. Their peace is external, it's conditional, and it's temperamental. My peace is different. It's internal, it transcends the conditions, it's never fickle. My peace is so unlike the world. In fact, it says he offers a peace that the world cannot give, but also we would add to this, he gives a, world, he gives a peace that the world cannot take. Right? And, and, and so these are very different things that he is offering. And so we might look at this even as Christians and say, yeah, that's really nice. Yes, I affirm that. Yes, those are verses in the Bible and I get that. Uh, but then we go, but why don't I, sh- why not, why don't I sense more peace? Why, why does it seem that there's no peace in my soul, no peace in my emotions, no peace in my relationships, no peace in my life? Why does it seem like there's no peace if Jesus promises he's going to give me a peace that the world doesn't know anything about? Well, we have to realize that to pursue this peace, experience this peace, it's not just on autopilot, like, hey, man, I prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, confessed Jesus, uh, now I should just have auto peace, right? I get that we would like that, but that's not really what we're afforded. What we're told is that, you know what, peace is something that you have, but peace is something that you pursue. Peace is something that we're offered, but peace is something that we must grab onto that which he's given to us. And so really quick here, three things is an encouragement. First, seek the peace that guards. Seek the peace that guards. We read this last week, but I bring it around today because, again, joy and peace are very directly connected. And so that's sort of why I used it last week and bring it up again today. This is what Paul writes, right? In prison, life's horrible. Everybody stabbed him in the back, run away from him, ditched him, everything else. And this is what he says. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he has done. And then you will experience God's peace which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Here's what's great about this. In the original language, it's really, really uh, brief. It's like these little quips. So here's what he says. Stop worrying, start praying. 
It's really that fast. Stop worrying. Start praying. So when I think about my life and I go, man, I don't have a lot of peace. I have a lot of anxiety or a lot of frustration or a lot of anger issues or a lot of just unmet expectations. I go right back to this. And I go, first thing, check that thing right here. Am I, am I, am I going to stop worrying and start praying? What I do is like, no, I'm not going to stop worrying. I'm going to keep worrying. That's interesting. Right? And praying, I'm not going to pray. I'm going to think. And if God wants to listen to my thoughts and call it prayer, fine. You know? Um, I, don't, I don't do this. So often I don't do this. Right? Instead, I think a lot, I fret a lot, I get frustrated a lot, I think about how things are unfair, I get bitter or just whatever. And, and it's like, well, okay, no, I don't know why I don't have any peace, man. Can't figure it out. See, Paul's given like this awesome formula, right? Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Every time you start to worry, start to pray. Every time you start to spin up, start to pray. And what's the content of your prayers? Tell him what you need and thank him for what he's done. Both of those count. Both of those count. Sometimes, if anything, we'll get really frustrated, really worried, and, and we'll just pray, God, take it away. And if God said, well, what about some of the things I've done in your life? Yeah, those were great, but take it away. And so saying, thank you. Thank you for my life. Thank you for my spouse. Thank you for my kids. Thank you for my home. Thank you for my country. Thank you for the people around me. Thank you for... Oh, there's all kinds of things to be thankful for. We so often don't stop to be thankful. And we can't figure out why our disposition's unthankful. And so what he's saying is, man, you want to have a real clean solution to peace? Don't worry. Start praying. Ask God for what you need and thank him for what he's done. Right? All of those are part of the formula. And what happens? He says, you're going to experience peace. Again, you know, if somebody comes to me and says, man, I've been doing that, I've been doing that, I've been doing that, I'm not sensing it. Man, we can have a conversation. I find more often than not, it's not what we do. Uh, we, again, we, we fret or worry or think or argue in our heads more than we stop worrying, start praying, and thank him as we seek him. And again, when we do that, we experience peace, not Peace like the world can give it, not peace that is afforded to us, afforded to us by our environment. Uh, it's a peace that surpasses understanding. It's a peace that you go, man, I don't even get why you sent such peace. I've met those people, man, where they just get it and they just have peace no matter, no matter what the conditions are, right? Because it's a peace more profound than just human scrambling can produce. And we don't just experience it, it says we're protected by it. Our hearts and minds are guarded by this peace, which is what we need. I mean, you think about it. When we don't sense peace, usually what's spun up? Our emotions and our thinking, right? We're just, we can't sleep. We're thinking, 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 and you feel that pit in your gut. It's your, it's your, it's your feelings and your thinking that needs guarding, and only this is going to guard it. And so, again, Jesus comes into the world to bring peace into us, but this peace is experienced when we do the things that Jesus has called us to do to experience that peace. So we need to seek the peace that guards now, this is usually in the context of just hardship or whatever else, but there's all this other time in life where maybe life isn't hard, so what do we do to see peace established there? Well, we need to seek the peace that guides. Paul continues in Philippians chapter 4. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, he says, think about these things. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace 
will be with you. Right? I, that's a great list right there. Um, this should be like our life verse. Because what he says is that even though the God of peace lives in you, there are things you do to experience that peace. One is when things are rough, stop worrying, start praying, thank God for what he's done, ask him for what you need, he's going to guard your heart and mind. The other is on the other times when things are good, there are things you should cultivate. There are things you should gravitate to, and when you do, the God of peace will be with you. That's the list. So next time you're sensing that maybe conflict is on the horizon, with your teenager, with your spouse, with your boss, with your employees, with your life, whatever else, what you want to do when you think about your next steps. In fact, think about your very next step. When you see a conflict coming, your very next step is to go to this and say, however I act next, here's what I need to do. I need to make sure that when I act or react or respond or whatever, first of all, that what I do is true. Whatever I do next is true. Second, that whatever I do next is honorable. Third, whatever I do next is just. Whatever I do next is pure. That it will be lovely, it will be commendable, that that's what I'll do. I'm not looking to pick a fight. I'm not looking to defend myself. I'm not, no, I don't have to do it. I need to make sure it's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. Right? Next time you find yourself with some idle time, and you're like, man, what should I do next? I've got so many things I could do. I'm by myself, whatever else. What should I do next? Just make sure it's true, it's honorable, just, pure. Lovely and commendable. Go back to the list. Next time you're contemplating your life goals or your kids' life goals or whatever else, and you're trying to map out what really matters to us as a family and that kind of thing, me as an individual, hey, just run through the list. Whatever I do, just make sure it's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, and commendable. Why? Because this is the road to the presence of God, and the presence of God is peace. Every one of these things, we talk about that. If you want hope, where's hope found? It's hope. Hope is found in the presence of God. Where is joy found? In the presence of God. Where is peace found? In the presence of God. You will not find these three in your life apart from the presence of God. So how is the presence of God found? Walk in the things that bring forth the presence of God and pray in a way that seeks out the presence of God. That's how it works. Seek the peace that guards. Seek the peace that guides. And finally, seek the peace that gives, that gives. In other words, peace is deposited in you, so you experience peace so that you can take peace to others. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Notice it doesn't say peacekeepers. That would be a little bit easier. We're not called to keep peace. We're called to create peace, to make peace. And that's something altogether different. James chapter 3, it says, But the wisdom from above is first of all pure. Here's these words we see again. It's also peace-loving, gentle at all times, willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peace-makers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest harvest of righteousness. Uh, this should be the Christian motto. It's so weird, man. I'll listen to Christians on the radio or whatever. They're actually more freaked out by peace than they want to make it. It's so weird. They'll be like, oh, watch out for peace. Watch out for people that talk about peace. Watch out for those who want to have peace in the world. I'm like, wait, we should be the peacemakers. Yeah, what they want to create is artificial peace. We have true peace, but we should be known as people who make it. We should be known as the peacemakers. We should exhibit these signs of gentle at all times, loving what is peaceful, right? Full of mercy and good deeds and not being 
those of favoritism, I mean, sincere, I mean, great words. That should be us. We don't have the luxury to not because we are the only uh, living iconic potential to show the world, hey, this is what this piece is that you're talking about really looks like. And, and until we display it, they're not going to quite get it. So what do we do? How do we do this? We continue the story. Right? We continue the story. You are born into a story. You are a continuation of God's unfolding story. Uh, God comes to bring peace. God saves those that he deposits peace in. You continue to display and show the peace of God, which means you are a part of the story. You just keep displaying Jesus. Display Jesus. In fact, I close with the words of the Apostle Peter in chapter 3 of his epistle. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Again, if we're sitting here today and we go, man, I need peace, I want peace, I don't sense peace, how do I get peace? I've just read a handful of verses that if you just did those things, you, you would not only experience peace, you would display peace. I would. I can honestly look at that and go, yes, I agree, I wholeheartedly believe, but I don't do. I don't do. And what all of this is calling us to is to say, you know what, you want to really understand peace, you want to exhibit peace, you want to display peace, you want to know peace. It's something that must be pursued. It won't just happen. It's something we pursue. And so right now, I want you all to bow your heads. And as you do, so I'm going to pray in the pursuit of peace. Um, Because again, I I find so often in my own life, um, it seems that peace is, is like, mountaintops. It doesn't seem to come along nearly as often as I would like. It seems like I'm, 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 I find problem more than I find peace. And so Jesus, um, I come before you now and I ask that for all of us you would show us what this peace looks like. And I ask for all of us that you would remind us by way of you, Holy Spirit, uh, speaking to us to pursue peace. Pursue the things that make for peace. And I confess, you know what, the, the things that make for peace, I don't know if I'm always really fond of those. I mean, in part, you know, I, I like UFC fighting. I like aggression. I think it's funny, and I think it's interesting, and I think it's entertaining. And, um, you know, I like the antithesis often of peace because it's almost like a hobby for me in my, in my worldview. And, and so maybe there's no, no question why sometimes the correlation is missing you know, in in my world. And so I confess that. I mean, I confess that it just seems like I spend a lot more time on the things that don't muster peace than on the things that do. And I don't know if there's anybody else like that out here, but but Jesus, I I pray for those of us that are like that, that you will uh, continue to convict us and continue to shape us and continue to remind us of what your presence really brought into this world, what it deposited in us and what we have access to if we seek it and we seek you. May we seek your hope. May we seek your joy. May we seek your peace. In your name we pray. Amen.